Sometimes it can be so challenging to humbly submit to that truth that you are the most high God. You are God all by yourself and you don't need nobody else. You are God in heaven and you do whatever you please. And we recognize, Lord, that you are good. When we look at the cross of Christ, when we look at the way in which you gave your son for our sin as the ultimate expression of your love, as the ultimate representation of your love, we can know that you are good, that you would give your only begotten son for us. Thank you, Lord. Because truly it is in the place of the cross and the empty tomb that we find comfort and we find strength as we submit to your sovereignty and your supremacy. Lord, you are beyond finding out. If you wouldn't reveal yourself to us, Lord, we could never know you. And yet, Lord, you have been so good to do so particularly and especially through Christ Jesus. So today we honor your name. We give you thanks and praise as we look to your word. Amen. Amen. So last week we began a brand new series, Is Life Worth Living? And we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is a book that um, often people tend to avoid. It's a book that has caused many uh, a great deal of um, consternation, caused people to be very perplexed as they've wrestled with the sentiments expressed in this book. Um, For me, as I grew up in the faith, it actually became... Probably my favorite book of the Old Testament. Um, It just resonated with my heart and mind. It really connected with me in a way that made sense to me as I read it. It spoke deeply to just the the questions of life that people wrestle with. And um, I believe that it is probably, in my opinion... My humble opinion, in my view, the most evangelistic book of the Old Testament in terms of being able to meet people in life with the words of Scripture in a way that they can actually relate to and that actually has meaning to them. It is a book that we have to 
handle carefully and approach properly. Because it can be easily misunderstood and easily misinterpreted. And so with this, we, we move cautiously toward it, trusting that the Lord will reveal himself most clearly to us through it. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this sentiment is life worth living, or maybe even you could put it as, what is the point of life? What is the point? Is a question that everybody faces at some time in their life. It could be at the loss of a loved one. We go through this experience and we ask, what is the point? Our sister Funke has gone to be with the Lord and at the age of 36 and we say, surely it, it wasn't meant to be that way. Surely there was a, a greater purpose. And yet we speak from a human perspective. We speak as people under the sun. And we see this phrase used in the, in the text throughout Ecclesiastes, under the sun or under heaven, representing a purely human or earthly point of view. Speaking purely from a human perspective, without appreciating or understanding God's revelation of higher things. Now, this type of talk isn't really something that's strange to us because we hear it a great deal in society and within social commentary. The atheists would tell us that there is no God. Those, the likes of Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawkins and Christopher Hitchens and um, those who were regarded as the, the new atheists, the real evangelistic atheists, those who are seeking to promote atheism with real passion, they would tell us that there is no God. And yet when you begin to search further as to, well, what does, that, what does that actually amount to when we start to think about meaning and purpose and value? There's very little that they have to say that actually satisfies our hearts. You, you see, to say that we are people who have just come about by accident, and we're floating on a planet that came about by accident through space uh, at this point in time, going through all that we go through in life. And it's all by accident is to say, well, there is really no meaning. They may say survival of the fittest. <clears throat> what does that mean for the weak? Does that mean that they're just fodder? They're just firewood for the strong. Hmm. But then again, who really is the fittest? When we look across the landscape of life and we look at the great and good of those who are esteemed as being wonderful and 
Yet when we look a little closer, we see the cracks in their lives and we see the dissatisfaction and we see the disillusionment. As Pastor Rob shared last week, we see the billionaire owner of Phones For You saying, often I would rate my happiness between a one and a two out of ten. And you're like, but surely, bro, you've achieved what we're all supposed to be aspiring to. I mean, haven't you found the point of life in that place? And so we recognize that the atheistic view is very lacking in any kind of credible sentiment or statement that's going to satisfy our hearts. And yet, these issues are where we find ourselves in the text as we meet the teacher. So we had an introduction from the narrator last week and he set the tone and he quotes the teacher and in quoting the teacher, he provides the summary of the whole matter in chapter 1 verse 2. Everything is meaningless. Everything, without exception, is meaningless under the sun. From a human perspective, from a purely human perspective, you can only arrive at that conclusion. And yet, as the narrator introduces us to the teacher who's being presented to us as an explorer who has endeavored to seek out the answer to the meaning of life. What is the point of living? Where can I find the real reason for our being, the real essence of life? We see him engaging with what many have engaged with since and really would have benefited. Those people, did. There, was a, there was a point the 19th, 20th century, they had what was called the, the existential movement. And basically they said there was no meaning to life. You have to determine what the meaning is to your life. Life has no meaning apart from the meaning that you give it. And so they sp- spoke in such terms and I'm thinking, well, just as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. We've already heard that before. There's nothing new in what you're saying. And furthermore, at the end of Ecclesiastes, we hear the resolve. So why should I believe you existentialists over the Bible? Wrestling with the same questions. And this is one of the beautiful things about Ecclesiastes. It is honest. It is real. It's real. And so in this, we're able to find instruction. We're able to find comfort. We're able to learn wisdom. We're able to meet with God. Now, the teacher or preacher as he is known as in some translations begins to set out his journey of exploration, seeking after meaning. And in doing so, 
in the words of a, a modern songwriter, he talks very plainly and very real. This is the realest talk that you expect to encounter. So let's pick up from verse 12. I'm going to read from the ESV, but throughout I'm likely to quote from the New Living Translation because it's difficult enough wrestling with these concepts, especially when you're not having to difficult, um, wrestle with difficult language. So let's take it from verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is just a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow let me pause there the teacher states the credentials of this voice being presented to us as the king an authoritative voice, one who is able to speak from a vantage point that we would readily listen to. Give you an example. There have been those people over the years who have, um, you know, had their things to say about award shows, whether they're in the field of music or in the field of, field of film making and so on, and they will talk about award shows, and often. You know, you will have the critics of the award shows. Who needs mobiles anyway? Who cares about Grammys anyway? Oscars, whatever. Now, you hear these criticisms, and you and I both know that when we hear those criticisms from somebody who's got no awards, we don't really take them seriously. It's like, you're just a hater. You're just bitter that you never got chosen. It's a bit like the, um, the recent Oscars, right? And there was a hoo-ha over, you know, the fact that black people weren't being sufficiently recognized. And the, the, the voice, the leading voice, was from someone who wasn't even a film actor. And they're like, but you're not even invited to the Oscars. How are you talking about you're going to boycott something you're not invited to? See, the teacher's position gives weight to their argument. Now, again, um, Pastor Rob made reference to 
the questionable identity of this teacher. Is this person Solomon? It could be Solomon. But at the same time, it may not be Solomon. And that's not really the point. When we get to chapter 12, verse 12, we see that the narrator is speaking to someone that he calls his son. And he's using this whole episode to teach a lesson to this, of this person of the younger generation, his son. We'll just call it his son. And so the point isn't specifically if it's Solomon. The point is the point of the message. The point of the message is the individual, the authoritative individual being presented is wrestling with the meaninglessness of life. Someone who is presented as being a high achiever, one of great power, wealth and influence. Even that person is wrestling with the meaninglessness of life. And at the end, the narrator gives the resolution. And so the important thing is that we learn the lesson as we walk with this king character, this Solomonic character, and we look at the circumstances that they present themselves as being in, and we recognize their struggle and their wrestle, we're able to learn. And not only are we able to learn, we're able to be encouraged because if we experience the reality of the struggle in our everyday lives, in those moments of reflection, when we, like the teacher, sit down to ponder and think, in those moments when our souls are laid bare and we lay on a pillow and we can't sleep and we're thinking, surely... There's, a, there's, there's more to life than this. We can then relate and be encouraged that this is a universal struggle that everyone deals with. So we see the king in verse 12 presented to us. And we see the mission that the king set himself upon to search for understanding, to explore wisdom, by using the wisdom that the king already had. Verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. One of the things they recognized about Jesus when he was growing up was that he was a child of wisdom and understanding. And how was it that they recognized it we see in the book of Luke? Because of the way in which he questioned the religious leaders. So he didn't sit down there spouting revelation knowledge. But he questioned the the, the religious, religious leaders in such a way that his questions, his very questions, revealed the wisdom that he had. And so we see that there is a certain wisdom to be had in gaining wisdom. To him who has, more will be given. To him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
And so, like the Proverbs tell us, we're to cry out for wisdom. We're to cry out for understanding. Let's not bury our head in the sands and just try and avoid all these issues. But let's ultimately look to God, which is the place that the teacher arrives at. But by wisdom, having wisdom, using that wisdom to explore everything being done. The teacher was going to leave no stone unturned to try and find the meaning of life. And it didn't take very long for the teacher to come to the conclusion that, like many people say, God has dealt a bad hand. You ever felt like God's dealt you a bad hand in life? You ever felt like life is just an uphill struggle? And just when it feels like you've overcome one trial, you're smack bang facing another one? And you feel like it's relentless and you're just like, when is this ever going to end? Why is this my lot, Lord? Why is this my portion, we may say? Well, this is the sense being communicated here. The, the New Living Translation says, I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. Now, it's interesting because the teacher speaking as someone under the sun. And yet he has this view of God. Well, there is a God and God's put something into motion and it's not good for us. And so therefore, it's God's fault. And we hear people say that so often in so many different ways. Well, if there is a God, why is there suffering? If there is a God, why do wicked people prosper? If there, and so fundamentally what they're saying is, if God is, if God exists, then it's his fault that everything is the way it is. That shows a very limited understanding of who the living God is. It shows a very limited understanding of how the living God works. You see, in Genesis, God made all things good. God made all things perfect. On the sixth day when he created man, the pinnacle of his creation, God looked at everything and said, not just that it is good, he said it is very good. This was the case in the beginning. So where did things go wrong? Where did it all go bad? What did God do to cause things to become the way they are? Was it God? Well, those of you who know, no, it wasn't. It was us. It was humanity. It was mankind. And I say us specifically because if you were standing in the garden with Adam, or if you were standing in the garden as a male with Eve, you would have done the same thing. Man was created perfect, but wasn't created divine. 
And so he had the capacity to sin. And fundamentally, the sin was putting himself before God. We all would have done it sooner or later. And we have all gone on to do it since. And so, as much as it might appear that God has dealt a tragic existence, it wasn't God who done it. God didn't make things corrupt. He made things good. And so, the teacher denies human responsibility and blame shifts to God. Just like Adam. God, it was the woman you gave me. (laughs) Basically, God, it's your fault. You should never have given me her in the first place. You know that the, the phrase, it's God's fault, is a contradiction in terms? If God is truly God, by definition, he can have no fault. By definition, he can do no wrong. So even to say it's God's fault doesn't even make sense. If God is truly God, God can do whatever he wants. If he's truly God, he must be perfect in all his ways. He has no fault and can do no wrong. We could finish right there. That's enough for us to go away with. Really. And yet we see that sin entered into the world through human human disobedience through our own rebellion, and in that, corruption came. Meaninglessness pervaded. And as we see in verse 15, at least the teacher acknowledges this. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered, as it says in the NLT. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, inherent, built in within all things is a corruption. And as much as the the teacher's trying to point the finger at God, he's recognizing the reality that in everything there is corruption. Whatever you might pursue to be the ultimate meaning in life, it is corrupt inherently at heart. It will fail you. It will not satisfy you. And the teacher begins to unpack the reality of this. He begins to testify and say amen to that reality. I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. Verse 16. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. And so he sets out to pursue wisdom as the ultimate meaning of life. Wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Education. Now, if I put it in those terms, some of you, are, you, you, that sounds very familiar. Because that's how it's presented to us very often in our day and age. Education is the ultimate meaning in life. It is the ultimate thing. 
you must get an education. Furthermore, for some of us, not even some of us, I wish I had this in my life. For some of you, it was not just that you must get an education, but you must get a superior education. Amen, brother? Feel my pain? All right, then. A superior education. Because then if you have a superior education, you will transcend all of the difficulties in life. You will transcend all of the meaninglessness of life. And some of you have had a good crack at it. Let me... um introduce you to someone else who's had a good crack at it. This is the late Dr. Dr. Shrikant Jekhar. Um, potentially the most educated man in the world, definitely the most educated man India has ever seen. Medical doctor, um, law, two MBAs, doctor of literature in Sanskrit. This is an ancient language that no one ever uses and is but Sanskrit. The highest of any degree in a university. Masters in not one, not two, but in ten different subjects. And they're not even, you know, sometimes you can get some of those degrees, right? I won't, I won't, I won't mention any days because I know some of you have got them. <laughs> like, those degrees in, in some of... Don't do it, don't do it, no, don't do it, don't do it. All right, well, you know those degrees, right? And they're kind of like the degrees that you, can't, you get the degree and you've got the degree, but it's like, no one really kind of gives it really much ratings because it's, it was one of those kind of walkthrough degrees, like, you know? It's almost like getting a degree online when you just get your doctorate in, in 10 days. <laughs> just subscribe to this. But this ain't, look, listen, 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 listen. This ain't that kind of kind of guy. Look, look at the degrees. Sociology. This is masters, you know. Economics, public administration, English literature, philosophy, political science, and it goes on. Most of his degrees were firsts. He had several gold medals for his degrees. Educated guy. This is the late Doctor, doctor. You could probably actually put three doctors there, to be honest. At least, I think. You could, really, right? Yeah. But here's the tragedy in this situation. The tragedy is that Dr. Shrikan died at the age of 49 in a car crash. When you consider the multitude of qualifications that this man had, 
in the face of his death, what are you left saying apart from what's the point? You see, the teacher sought after the meaning of life in wisdom and knowledge. And yet in verse 18, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Now, you don't even have to be on these triple doctor levels to appreciate the reality of that. There have been many of us who have had a tremendous desire to work for a particular company, work in a particular organization. From the outside, they just look so outstanding. And you just thought that, you know what, my life would be so fulfilled in working for this this company, working for this organization. And then you actually are blessed to be able to get to work for them. And then you begin to get an inner work insight to the inner workings of the, of, the, of the organization. You begin to get an insight to the inner workings. And you begin to think, is this really <laughs> what's going on here? And you begin to get disillusioned at the fact that they have such a tremendously glowing exterior. But on the inside, it's, it's a bit like the wizard in Wizard of Oz. You get behind the scenes and you see, <laughs> you see cogs and strings and a itty bitty little man sitting there. The greater our wisdom, the greater our grief. The increase of knowledge only increases sorrow. They say, not only the more you know is the more you don't know, But they also say, the more you know, is the more you realize you don't want to know. Because the more you know, the more you come face to face with that inherent corruption at the heart of all things, and even at the heart of all people. And so, education isn't the ultimate meaning in life. And you see, it does, it's not to say that there isn't good in these things. But I heard somebody once say, an idol is when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. When you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Education isn't the ultimate good. It isn't the ultimate meaning in life. In chapter 2, we see the teacher go on to explore the pleasure principle. To pursue meaning in pleasure and self-indulgence. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly 
till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure, self-indulgence, possessions, power, sex. And yet the meaning was not found in any of those things. You see, pleasure can be a wonderful form of escape. Until you realize it's an escape that leads to nowhere. The teacher looked for the good things in life, the fine things in life, for the real pleasures in life. Is the meaning to be found in those things? How about laughter? May have opened up his own comedy club within the courts of his palace, laughed until he cried, till he got to the point of saying, what's the point? It's meaningless. What good does it do to seek pleasure? Verse 3, okay, well maybe... This will be aided by wine. Let me just have some drink. And yet, as it says in NLT, verse 3, while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. And that, that's such a picturesque statement. I was seeking after wisdom while clutching the image of a bottle of wine in hand. At foolishness. 
so many of these things are such that not only do people pursue meaning in them, but they get to the place where <laughs> they no longer control these things, but these things control them. These things begin to degenerate and corrupt our lives. The NHS last year was said to have spent record amounts of money on dealing with the effects of alcoholism or drunkenness. We see this extended to the whole issue of drugs, whatever category, from weed to crack. People trying to find fulfillment through engaging in these things, but there's, it's a real plight of foolishness because it not only is empty, but it's corrupting in its devastating effects on an individual's life. The king looked for experiences that were common to people in the quest to find meaning. He then said, okay, I'm going to give myself to projects. I'm going to build. And, and we can relate to that. You know, we live in a culture where we are encouraged to pursue bricks and mortar, to invest in homes. And we watch all of the one-hour makeover shows, dreaming that it was our place. And we scan through the internet pages of house and gardens or home and gardens or whatever it is. Or we look at the lifestyles of the rich and famous cribs and we're like, that's the levels and we've made it. Get on the property ladder, work your way up. You know, there's a sense here in the original language of the teacher trying to recreate paradise lost. He talks about beautiful vineyards and fruit trees and reservoirs and pools. And in the original language, there's this sense of trying to re recreate Eden. As I, um, as, as I was growing up, um, I grew up uh, pretty much as an only child. And so my cousins were like my siblings. And they were all very much older than me. And um, many of them were Rastafarian. I never really understood what they was into, especially as a younger person. But when I used to kind of engage, like, so I would call them uncle because they're bigger than me. Uncle D, why do you um, smoke weed so much? natural <laughs> one time one of them said it's a natural mystic blowing <laughs> obviously I didn't understand the reference as he quotes Bob Marley I said why don't you eat any pork and just ital food Don't worry. We're going back to Eden. 
And that was, that was the sentiment. We're going back to Eden. <laughs> These attempts to recreate paradise lost. Furthermore, the teacher went on to display great power. He bought people's lives. I mean, there comes a point when possessions don't mean anything. Money, I mean, we see the king had money. He said he had the, the, the money of, of kings and provinces. He had the wealth of a small country. If um, Kanye West is anything to be um, <laughs> judged by, it, it seems that it doesn't matter how much money you got. There's always a quest for something more. So he has a fashion line. He makes music. And yet he goes in interviews time and time again, getting extremely passionate about the fact that he doesn't have enough money. And that actually people need to support him in order to have more money. And so, one particular interview, he's been interviewed by Sway. Um, the, the classic, how Sway? And Sway's simply trying to ask him, why don't you just do what you want to do? Like, you've got the resources, you've got the means to do what you want to do. Why do you have to come and be moaning and crying and just get on with it? You don't understand, Sway? How, Sway? How? You don't have the answers. And basically he's saying, look, it doesn't matter how much money you've got. If you haven't got control, it doesn't mean nothing. If you don't have power, I'm in an industry with the Vanderbilts and the Rock of Villain. And he's mentioning all these names and they're controlling the industry. So I can never attain to their level of success. Because ultimately they're in control. That's what he's like, but you've got money, bro. You can just invest and build and do what you're doing. Now, it gives us an, an insight to the, <laughs> the mindset of many of the rich. Because there comes a point when it's, it's not even about money. More money, more problems, right? Biggie Smalls. But power and control and the lust for it. And the sense that if I am able to control anything and everything, then I will be truly ascended to the, the ultimate meaning in life. The ultimate purpose of my being can be fulfilled. But as we see repeated throughout Ecclesiastes, there are things that we cannot control. No matter how much money or power we have. And the ultimate of those is death. And so, verse 8 silver and gold, the treasures of many kings and provinces, singers, both male and female. Beautiful concubines, sexual pleasures without limit. I had everything a man could desire, the teacher said. 
I did not withhold myself from any pleasure that I wanted. You know, the reality is that that thing that you're pursuing, that thing that you so desire, you'll get it and you'll want more. You will get it, you will experience it, and you will want, it will never satisfy. Because what was the end of the matter? It was all meaningless. Furthermore, he went on to give himself to building projects and working hard and just seeking job satisfaction. I used to work in careers and um, very often, most often, I would encounter people who they just wanted a change of career because they were in a job because they had to be rather than the fact they wanted to be. And so they just felt so unfulfilled. They lacked job satisfaction. And so often we would kind of go through the process of helping them to, to begin to, you know, discover for many what it is that you really want to do. And so one of the first questions I'd ask is, what if you could do anything in the world, money, no object, no restriction, no hindrance? Money wasn't even a necessity. If you could do anything in the world that you wanted to do, what would you do? And that question would often expose that. That which the individual believed to be the most fulfilling pursuit that they could give themselves to. And yet there was one or two occasions where when I asked the person that question, they were like, you know what? I've kind of done that. And um, I don't think it's the answer. One of them said that he wanted to be a, a, a golf instructor and teach businessmen how to play golf. And it would kind of combine his passion for golf and having his own business and so on. And he'd done that over in, um, on the continent. You know, you go to those big hotels and they've got the golf courses on the back and so on. And he was out there and so on and so forth. And, and came back to England. Came back to cold England from sunny continent, dream job, still unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And even though there was a certain degree of satisfaction in it. Verse 10. <clears throat> the teacher says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. The teacher found pleasure in the hard work that was well-directed, that provided a certain degree of fulfillment. But the recognition was that it's temporary. And this is one of the things that we see being communicated in the meaninglessness of those things under the sun. That you can find a certain degree of meaning. It's not to say it's completely worthless and has no benefit whatsoever. But it's only temporary. It's only fleeting. It's only brief. 
And so he returns to the conclusion at this point. Verse 11. I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish. It was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere, says the NLT. Now, this is the conclusion that we come to when we consider things under the sun. And yet, when Jesus stepped onto the planet, into the theater of life, he said these words, Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, in the quest for fulfillment, we're to look to God. In the quest for ultimate meaning, we're to look for God. And as we feed on God's word and commune in relationship with him, we are provided substance that even is... It, it, it tops, it, it, it eclipses any material things we can pursue, whether it's education and status and respect and money and pleasure. That actually being related to the one who created us and walking in his word, there and there alone do we truly find fulfillment and satisfaction. Amen. It's interesting because we see the word of God here being paralleled with bread, which is something of material substance. And it's saying that God's word is greater than that of material substance. And yet, we also recognize that God's word is not material in and of itself, but it speaks to our souls and it informs our lives. And so there's a double power in this, that that the, the substance of God's word nourishes us internally and externally. It's not even as if it's only good for our minds because it's God's word. But it's good for our lives. And it surpasses any material things that we might pursue. The Apostle Paul said this. In Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You see, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate substance isn't found in work. It isn't found in projects. It isn't found in fitness. It isn't found in money. It isn't found in sex. It isn't found in relationships. It isn't found in status. It isn't found in power. It isn't found in education. It's found in relationship with God through Christ Jesus. And this ought to cause our priorities to shift. It ought to cause us to live life differently. We can no longer live life as though money education, 
academic attainment is the greatest thing for us to be pursuing. Because from an eternal perspective, it has no value. And so what are you putting first? What are you pursuing as being ultimate? What are you seeking after as being your ultimate fulfillment? As they say, when life is all said and done, no one's going to be laying on their deathbed wishing they had more money. Wishing they had more degrees than doctor, doctor, doctor. No one. Because in the view of eternity, we see that those things have no significance. No meaning. And so we're called to live life, live life not merely under the sun, but to live it in the sun, S-O-N, in Christ. Amen. I'm going to um, invite the team to come back up. And invite us all to stand as I pray. Father God, I I do ask first and foremost that you'd forgive us for having misplaced priorities, for valuing things um, above you, even for those occasions, Lord, when, you know, if we're honest, we've esteemed you and yet esteemed other things alongside you. Um, The first of your commandments, Lord, to the Israelites was that you will have no other gods before or beside me. There is no one and nothing on your level, Lord God. And forgive us, Lord, for selfishly seeking fulfillment and ultimate meaning in those things that offer nothing of the, of the sort, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, because some of us have been consumed by those things. We've experienced the pain and corruption of being overcome by those things that we've pursued, those idols that we've established in our hearts. We ask that you be merciful to us, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you for your mercy in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for delivering us from ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to appreciate the the, the real inherent corruption that there is in all things and that there is nothing that is capable of delivering what we desire. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes through Christ Jesus. Opening our eyes to who you are 
You're the living God. Hallelujah. You alone are worthy of our affections, of our desires. And there is no fault in you, Lord. And so I pray that, Lord, you would strengthen us in your grace. Establish us in you, Lord. To put you first in all things. You said, Lord, seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and all other things will be added. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for such a precious promise. We cannot fail. Help us daily, Lord, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to recognize you as the supreme, to put you first. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.